I've been to so many events where there's loads of really great talking that goes on. Get really excited that the world's going to change. You go away from the event and almost nothing happens. What we wanted to do with the Chancery Lane project is make sure that there was a tangible, practical output from everything we do. You don't have to be an environmental specialist, but you can think about what are the implications for your practice area as a result of climate change. And if you apply that lens to your practice, then actually there is a way in which we can contribute. To have the, the playbooks come out with the contractual clauses, it was amazing because we could pull bits out and actually create things that we thought could work. The Hearing. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. The Cross-Examination. Hello, I'm Becky Anderson and welcome to this episode of The Hearing, The Cross-Examination. I've got three fascinating guests to talk to us today about the Chancery Lane Project, a climate change initiative for lawyers. First up is Matt Gingell. He's the General Counsel at Oxygen House and a founder of the Chancery Lane Project. The Cross-Examination. I always start by saying it's a legal pro bono project to fight climate change. But it's so much more than that. Our vision is a world where every contract and law enables solutions to climate change. And to achieve that, our purpose is to help create those practical legal solutions using collaborative problem solving. The project's genesis started after London Climate Action Week in July 2019. At one of the events, ocean explorer Penn Haddo finished a talk by saying, we need a Manhattan project for climate change. Now, he didn't mean we need more nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction, but his analogy was that we need the focus and urgency of the Manhattan project. So I started thinking, what can we do as a legal profession around climate change other than climate litigation? How can we collaborate and innovate in a way that produced practical climate solutions? What if we convened a diverse range of bright legal minds to focus on combating climate change? Would that change the dynamic from talking to doing? I've been to so many events where there's loads of really great talking that goes on. Get really excited that the world's going to change. You go away from the event and almost nothing happens. I'm Yasmin Walji. I'm the International Pro Bono Director for Hogan Lovells, and I'm particularly interested in the work that we are doing around the Chancery Loan Project. The firm has made a commitment at um, a global level to taking a real leadership role around sustainability. And what that means is it's put as an equal priority with the other four strategic aims of the business. As part of that, we are now on a journey to decarbonise our operations. So I think that one of the interesting and challenging and difficult things about climate change is that it is so big and so complicated and very abstract. And I wonder if people often have trouble getting from this big abstract idea down to what is the specific thing that I need to do about it. Absolutely. I totally understand that. And it has been a challenging issue to translate the complexity of climate change into what can I do at a very basic level. And I think for many years, it's been about scientists and specialists who know about this. And it's very difficult to think about, well, how do we as individuals affect that? 
there has been some incredible work done over the last 20, 30 years by scientists, by environmental lawyers, um, by those in society who don't get enough recognition about climate change. But what we're trying to do with the Chancery Lane project is we're trying to mainstream it into the corporate sector, into the M&A sector. Um, you know, mainstream corporate lawyers can influence a huge amount of finance. And it's actually that's our spot. The Chancery Lane project offers a real opportunity for us because you don't have to be an environmental specialist, but you can think about what are the implications for your practice area as a result of climate change. And if you apply that lens to your practice, then actually there is a way in which we can contribute to addressing climate change through drafting and through the drafting of clauses. Environmental lawyers are still hugely important. They they still drive the best uh, drafting and behaviour and, and influence on environmental contracts. But mainstreaming it into a share purchase agreement or a supply contract is where it's really exciting so that every lawyer is considering climate change as part of their practice. What we wanted to do with the Chancery Lane project is make sure that there was a tangible, practical output from everything we do. So we adopted kind of a legal hackathon mentality in order to convene people to collaborate on those problems. So what is a legal hackathon? Well, these are usually tech events where a group of people get together for a short but intense period to collaborate on something like a coding project. A legal hackathon means a room full of lawyers collaboratively drafting clauses and laws over the course of a single day. So as corporate lawyers, here we are being invited to be involved in something that's quite exciting, a hackathon, like we're kind of IT um, and innovative uh, <laughs> individuals that have come together. And there is energy in the room, absolutely. It was quite unlike any other legal event I'd ever been to. It wasn't being put into focus groups and then going home and nothing happening. It was a very different event that most of the time we were sitting in our groups creating solutions, coming up with ideas and then doing the drafting for them. And there was definitely a sense in the room that the thing that I am doing now is going to ripple out. And there's energy when we get behind these drafting sessions. What it enables me to do actually is to offer pro bono opportunities in bite-sized sections to lawyers to participate with the skill set that they have. And this is a great way of having lawyers' time used effectively on a pro bono project that is achieving impact. I think you're right. I think that's one of the advantages, in a way, is the bite-sized nature of it. So I remember doing pro bono work back when I worked in private practice. It was a case. So there were times where you had to be available to people. Um, and that butted up against sometimes the fee-earning work. And there's always, I think, I mean, you will know better than me, um, there's always that tension, isn't there, between but I've got to stay up late into the night to get this deal done and I've got this pro bono case. And what I think, I don't know if you're finding this, but what I think is very interesting about the Chancery Lane project is you could just be drafting a discrete clause. You could just be second reading somebody else's discrete clause. Absolutely. It's manageable. And, and we have people with very busy lives, very demanding roles. And so actually, this is something that they can get involved in, feel that they have a purpose at the end of it, that they're actually achieving an impact. The practical output that I was talking about is this creation of this 
contract climate playbook and a green paper of model laws. And we've since gone on to publish a glossary of climate change legal definitions. The power behind a playbook is that we're not telling lawyers what to do. We're giving them tools from which to, to play out with clients and in certain situations that can have this positive impact. Because I think we all see that climate change laws will come into effect, but the impact of those is going to take a considerable amount of time to be to be felt. And that's time we can ill afford because obviously the IPCC, the leading uh, climate scientists around the world say we have until 2030 in order to cut emissions uh, to stop the world from warming above 1.5 or, or 2 degrees. So we have this 10-year window and we're counting down in the project in that 10-year window. And so those laws we need to bring forward and we bring forward those laws by creating model laws which give inspiration and ideas to um, lawmakers around the world. But prior to those model laws um, being debated and enacted, we can make a change today with the contracts because contracts can be put in place by a multinational company today. Unlike laws, they can pervade economies, they can pervade jurisdictions. So the reach and scope of a contract is really powerful. And those contractual obligations can ripple through supply chains, ripple through economies and have this really exciting and profound influence and, and change on the way we do business. One of the things that tech companies are so amazing at is the idea of iterating. So um, is it fail quickly? The idea is you get an idea out, it fails, it teaches you something and you very quickly get another idea out. And what you definitely don't want to do is spend two years crafting a perfect piece of technology, which you then take to market and you find it's just rubbish and that nobody wants it. And as lawyers, we're terrible at that because um, we're all anxious overachievers and we're all terrified that we're going to miss that one risk that's going to tank the company. You know, I think that lawyers are very hesitant drafters um, and we spend absolutely ages crafting things to try and make it perfect and to cut off it, make sure we've kind of closed off every single risk. And the beauty of not only the hackathon, but creating these imaginative, proactive, forward-looking clauses is I think you can, gives you permission to be more iterative. Yes, and more innovative. So mm. more innovative and more iterative. Because firstly, it's not in our nature as lawyers to collaborate with the um, competition. <laughs> no. um, but but nature but nature requires it of us. So that, there's that. But also, we often don't have the headspace or time to think innovatively about things because we're, we're all under so much time pressure in our in our careers. And also, people are trying to progress their own careers. So. They don't want to be seen to be doing something that could be seen as activists. So what we try and do with our events is create this really safe space to innovate where no idea is a bad idea, where you know there's no attribution, where we have a peer review process which makes sure every piece of drafting we put out is exciting but credible. To me, what you're describing sort of is an activist position. It's lawyers using their skills and their abilities to affect a positive change. Um, but it's not what the word that we would normally think of when you say activist, you normally conjure up a very different image. And I think that's actually kind of fabulous. Um, I think one of the things that also excites me about this project, and I'm going to kind of use my personal analogy for how I sort of see climate change. Um, and I see climate change almost that we're all on a massive ship um, and the ship is full steam ahead, charging at an iceberg. 
And everybody on the ship knows the iceberg's there and they know it's a problem. But if we don't all work together, we can't move the ship in time. Um, and everybody's sort of sitting in their own little um, silo feeling like, well, there's nothing that I can do to affect this massive ship that's just charging forward. And it's almost like what you need is a culture shift. And as we know, you know, as many people have said in many important ways over the years, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture is the hardest thing to change. The culture of our entire planet is pushing the ship towards the iceberg. And what really interests me is the idea of using simple changes in contract, the addition of simple clauses in contracts is this really nimble way to very subtly start that that culture shift. Actually, I think that this is aligned to where lots of businesses are going. So I know the UNFCC have got a, a race to zero project where they're encouraging businesses and organisations to sign up and commit to their net zero target reduction um, and publicly state that. And lots of businesses are doing that. My name's Dan Summers. I'm a commercial lawyer at the Environment Agency. Any opinions I give today, um, they're just my opinions rather than any sort of corporate view of the Environment Agency. When we heard about the, you know, the board's decision to set this net zero by 2030 target and what it entailed, I think most of the lawyers in the organisation took a bit of a step back and they're like, right, this is, this is really exciting, but you know, how are we going to achieve this? In order to achieve those net zero targets, they will have to create a net zero culture because it's not just one department. It can't be just the CSR or the sustainability department that achieves that net zero goal. It has to be the whole business. And you'll see in some of the other drafting, we, we talk about that uh, uh, and have created a net zero employment handbook because it, in a business, every employee has to buy into delivering net zero. Otherwise, that business will not be able to achieve it. And that goes hand in hand with culture. I mean, I know policies aren't part of culture, but they embed and they, they uh, kind of ring fence that culture and, and that behavior. I think the board felt that someone needed to take to grab this and take a lead on it and show everyone that it could be done. We've looked at our own carbon emissions within our organisation, and you know, obviously, we we build quite a lot of things in, you know, build a lot of flood defences, mm. um, and you know, that that in itself is the main source of our carbon emissions. It's about twenty five percent from uh, from our own activities, and about seventy five percent from our supply chain. Ah. So our supply chain becomes hugely important in reaching that net zero target that we've set ourselves for twenty thirty. My job as a commercial lawyer is very intrinsic to that and making sure that we are able to drive the right behaviours through our supply chain to um, to achieve that target. The Chancery Lane project work that's gone on was incredibly helpful and couldn't have really come out at a better time for us because, you know, we were, we were bouncing these ideas around. But we were we were struggling to, you know, if I'm honest, we weren't really putting pen to paper yet. We had loads of ideas, but we were we were sort of we hadn't taken the steps of putting pen to paper. And then to have the, the playbooks come out from the Chancery Lane project with the contractual clauses and to see the ideas that have been put on paper, it, it, it was amazing because we could pull bits out of different clauses and create and actually create things that we thought could work. Once you actually get into the clauses. Uh, you know, it's not actually that different from anything else. You know, the, 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 the mechanisms that you think of using and, the, you know, the processes that you put in place through the contracts 
or that we've tried to put it, that we're starting to put in place. It's a lot about data um, and it's a lot about making it work for both parties and sort of being able to being able to split the risk for both parties. So you're not, you know, you're not setting targets too high um, so that people get, the contractors get scared off and you're not setting too low so that we don't achieve our targets. One thing we do have to be careful about is, um, you know, we recognise quite early on that if we went out for the contracts that we would love to go out for right now, which would have pretty strong environmental aspects to them, there's a risk that we would get no responses to those or they would just be hugely, hugely expensive. So we've got to select suppliers that we that you know that have the right you know right starting points and meet the right criteria in the procurement. But at that stage, we've got to take those suppliers on a journey with us to try and help them reduce their carbon output and help them achieve the environmental goals that we're aiming for. For the longest time that I could remember in my professional career, um, environmental issues were a nice to have, um, but you weren't necessarily going to sink lots of money into a nice to have. And I think the change that we're now seeing is that climate change is affecting people's profit margins. And it might be affecting them in currently ways that are indirect and hidden from the balance sheet, but it is certainly having an effect on them. So it almost seems that you are coming in at precisely the right moment to say, hang on a minute, did you realise climate crisis is actually affecting your profits in these hidden ways? And here is some practical, easy, quick win ways that you can start changing that just by changing your contract T's and C's. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I see investor behavior changing. Um, you look at the statements from BlackRock and some of the other big institutional investors. These are seismic shifts in behavior. And money drives behavior in our economies. We live in a capitalist society. Um, and that's where we think uh, kind of using the power of business and the power of business contracts to make that influence is the best way you can change things in the in the shortest amount of time. We've always, in our contracts, since I joined the Environment Agency seven years ago now, we've always tried to put in place, you know, requirements on, um, you know, recycling materials and energy usage and, you know, sustainable travel policies and things like that. You know, we, we always put those in the contracts. But the problem was, is that they were either generally unenforceable and sometimes unenforced. Um, you know, I didn't come across. I didn't come across that that much. But you know, it's it's very easy when you've got a contract that that is working really well in all of the factors that are that you care about in your position at the Environment Agency or in any organisation. Um, you know, to and it's working well. And it's delivering exactly what you needed. It's very easy to forget about or to not worry about the peripheral things. Because, you know, if you wanted a computer system, you are getting the computer system you wanted. The environmental requirements are so intrinsic to what we do as an organization now. I think that now we won't be in that position anymore. I talk about the project being aligned to profession, as in the legal profession, the planet and profit. And it's that alignment that engages people because they can see how it's aligned to a business strategy on sustainability, on climate, but also aligned to their day job. And I think that is where the, the crux of getting this right and getting that culture of change is going to happen.
the environment agency has changed but i think the people at the environment agency are being allowed to express their voice more and the environment agency as a whole is being is, is expressing its its concern its voice more probably because i think we think this is the time to really push this point because there is this sort of movement towards you know and, and, and you know in the whole of england there's in the whole of the world there's 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 finally beginning to be an understanding that this is a real issue for the for everybody I also, um, on a much more personal level, because like you, this is a subject which is very dear to my own heart. I feel like um, there won't be another chance, almost. We're at the point now. And one of the kind of comments, when I talk to people about um, the climate crisis and and what I sort of say to them is, this is no longer 10, 20 years in the future. I think people like me, I'm in my early 40s. Global warming was taught at school when I was a child. You know, grown up with the idea that this is a problem. Mm. But I've grown up with the idea that this is a problem. It's been in my life the whole time. And I think that's the same for a lot of people my age. Um, And the kind of, I think the, the message to get across now perhaps is those things that we were worried about 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when we were all at school learning about it, mm. that's now. We're not, climate change is no longer off in the future. The climate has changed and it's here. Yes. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because of your work with the Environment Agency and your work on you know, flood defences and things like that is, you know, what are the things that you have seen which are saying very clearly, it's not climate change, it's climate changed? You only have to look at the weather that we've experienced over the time that I've been here. The number of times that a one in a hundred year flood has happened, you know, over the past five years in, in certain areas is astounding. In any usual period of time, from looking at the past 50, 100 years, you know, though th- that wouldn't have happened. Then also the verging on drought that's occurred at some periods of time as well. There is a, a certainly much more consciousness around climate risk. That is absolutely true. And that is partly driven internally by things like the Chancery Lane Project and other projects that we in, we're involved in. But also the external climate, which is now looking at and prioritising ESG concerns, um, looking at the Companies Act and Section 414 of the Companies Act, where companies need to be transparent about risks and information relating to environmental matters. There's also... Section 172, the duty to act and to uh, promote the success of the business for shareholders. So it's the entire kind of um, mood music that's associated with all of the changing environments where people are becoming much more aware of climate and climate risks. And also then it's obviously a driver from our client's perspective. So we have done a survey of our most strategic clients, the clients that we work for on a regular basis, 94% of them are saying something about sustainability and many of them are going far further than that. So there's obviously an incredibly important role for us as lawyers to play. I'm particularly interested to hear that that clients are shifting their position as well, because I think that you're right in identifying that as an important driver obviously not the only driver but an important driver nonetheless and i did want to ask are you seeing coming through the client pipeline a lot of specific questions and concerns about climate change i mean moving again from that really really abstract down to the nitty-gritty detail on rfps on invitations to pitch 
there is now the question of what are you doing about your own sustainability and how can you help us and what can you do? I'm seeing that a lot more. Often you get it on the pro bono side of things. Um, what pro bono work can your firm engage with us on as part of the environmental speech? So I think that it is absolutely part of the general counsel's thought process. To me, at the moment, it feels like corporates are doing some of the most interesting things in um, the target zero space, um, as compared to governments, I think, is what I was going to say, not as compared to the fantastic non-profit organisations who've been working tirelessly on it for so many years. But, you know, I think that what we've seen, um, particularly in America, that was very interesting when Donald Trump was first elected, that he tried um, was looking to pull out of the Paris Climate Accord. And the response to that was very interesting because the response was large corporations in America saying, well, you can pull America out, but my corporation is staying in as far as we're concerned. And I think we've seen quite a lot of that recently. You know, we've got large tech companies like Microsoft committing to um, carbon neutrality and, and looking historically as well, aren't they? Microsoft are not only saying we're going to be um, net zero today, but we're going to try and do things to neutralize the carbon that we've previously put into the environment prior to today. And I think Sainsbury's and other organizations are doing similar things. And it seems to me there's a very interesting culture again, culture shift where we're seeing sort of the hesitancy of governments and a sort of a almost full throttle, you know, let's go at this 110% from large corporates. I actually see that as one of the, the really positives to come out of certainly this year, which has been tough, and, and the last couple. I, I definitely see that businesses can move faster than governments, and that's not a criticism of any government. That is a just a symptom of, of the world we live in. Businesses can make a decision to change and make a decision to make the declarations that you're talking about, um, and that top-level declaration from Microsoft, from Apple, from Sainsbury's means that it will have to happen. They have, in effect, promised that to their shareholders in a public statement. Mm. And I know lots of people think it's it's greenwashing, but I think it allows them to be held to account. And I think they value their brand's reputation so much that they will make it happen. And coming from the top, it means it has to be cascaded and thought about through every strategic and business planning decision that that business makes. And every customer relationship, every supplier relationship, even the, where things are hosted for websites, all of that can have a net zero cascade contract element to it. And actually what we're talking about is all of these kind of net zero ambitions have to be given effect to through um, suppliers and other contractual relationships. So there's actually a huge amount for lawyers to do there. Most in-house lawyers will be familiar with the phrase what gets measured gets managed or what gets measured gets done. So when climate change seems so remote, showing meaningful results is absolutely key. And I asked Matt, how are the Chancery Lane project measuring the impact of their work? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? And um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. And, um, you know, it's the impact measurement specific impact measurement is the 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 utopia of any kind of um charity or impact investor and we are still developing it so it's still a work in progress but what we are doing is measuring ourselves against four goals 
So the goal of convening the legal profession in innovative and fun ways, we have a goal too, which is to publish uh, the playbook and the, uh, the green paper of model laws. We then have goal three, which is to deploy and amplify them. Um, so there we're trying to measure how um, many times a in-house team or a firm change their precedent with some of our drafting. And then um, ultimately we want to, as goal four, create new market norms. And so that is about measuring how many times, for example, net zero or climate change is mentioned in contracts on practical law or LexisNexis or in a firm's precedent bank. And that is very difficult for us to measure because that is information and data that those organisations will hold and aren't likely to publish. So what we kind of look at is how many times do people report to us that they have used it or changed it? And we do it this impact survey at least once a year to try and measure that uh, and then report on that as part of our impact reporting on a yearly basis. And that changing of the precedent within a uh, knowledge manager or um, a firm's precedent bank or an in-house team's precedent bank is really key because it creates that opt-out culture rather than an opt-in. So you take the better partnership green leases, which have been around for many years now. Many firms have those as an opt-in to their standard lease provisions. So when you're drafting, you probably thought, well, I don't need to include those in this situation. Um, whereas if they were an opt-out, the actual drafter would have to take them out. And so what that means is that it's more likely to involve a conversation with a client to say, oh, do you want these green lease provisions in your contract? So the precedent is absolutely key to making this cultural change that you were talking about. I think there's an element of sort of normalising it. So once you've got a clause in some boilerplate in the contract, it's just going to keep getting sent out. And it's going to be for the lawyers on the other side to say, actually, we want that clause out. Otherwise, it's just standard. And after a while, when something's in boilerplate, I mean, we all talk about boilerplate is because it's the thing that you might cast an eye over it, but you're not going to apply the level of scrutiny to the boilerplate that you might to some unfamiliar operative clauses because it's boilerplate and we all know why it's there and you're just really looking for something unusual. Absolutely, we do have to normalise it. But then also we need to think about specific risks. So it's a way of building on that conversation with the client. And actually, I think increasingly, if we don't advise on these things, I think that is a problem. I, I, I think that it, it's something that we ought to be well aware of and be making our clients aware of because it's in our clients' best interests. Whilst you know, the traditional way of working with clients is to take instructions from them on what, on what they want us to do, it's always open for lawyers to raise climate issues with their clients and to, and to talk to them about them and say, you know, have you thought about this? And have you thought about if you could operate this contract in a very effective way, in the same way, but also introduce, introduce carbon reduction measures and introduce climate issues into the contract? Um, you know, and actually, I think if, if lawyers start raising that with their clients, then um, clients will often be really grateful for that and say, oh, it's a great idea. You know, I really like that idea, you know, and actually that will work for my organisation in terms of our sustainability objectives. I think I might even go a bit further than you. And I might say in relation to your second point, which I think is 
is really interesting. I would say I think that we're reaching a point now where climate risks are so acute and so real and so here that if as a lawyer you are not mentioning them, then you are failing in your duty to give proper advice. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a good point. As a lawyer as well, you have to look to the future when you're giving advice. And, you know, in 10 years time, we could be living in a very, very different world. If you can put your client on the journey to be more resilient in the future, I think that's when you're giving the best advice to your client. Goal four, I think, is where it gets really exciting, where you're creating new market norms. Because if two sides of a transaction see a precedent on each side, that contains this drafting that will be taken as kind of the normal market position so that's the kind of ultimate goal is to create that new market norm and once you create a new market norms it allows legislators to be more ambitious with what they want to do from a climate legislation point of view because the market has already shifted towards the position they were going to legislate for what do you think is the top thing a lawyer any lawyer could do to make things better in terms of climate change I think actually going and having a look at what the Chancery Lane project has to offer is a really good start. Your sphere of influence is so much bigger as a lawyer. We are empowered people. We ought to be taking the initiative. So I suppose my first thing is go and look at the Chancery Lane project, go and have a conversation with them. It is a brilliant way to become involved in something that is very complex. As a profession, we have this amazing ability to influence we have the power of our spend so for example as a legal team in-house legal team we only buy firms who use 100 percent renewable energy on their contracts you realize the power of our pens everyone has to take responsibility for this themselves it's very easy to assume that one person's actions are not going to make or break the climate crisis. And, you know, whilst that's right, that probably one person's actions are not, there's got to be a, a movement across everyone to take action on this and to start trying to reduce their own carbon emissions. Because if everyone takes individual action, there becomes a general movement and then it becomes the socially acceptable thing to do. As lawyers, I think we're always much maligned as a profession. And we're always seen as kind of, um, you know, perhaps money grabbing or, you know, always looking on the, on the, at the worst things in life. And I, I like to change that dynamic because I think it goes to social value of us as a profession as well. I do still firmly believe that if we take far effective action, then, then, you know, we, we can, you know, I don't think we're going to stop it. I think, you know, the climate has changed. There's, there's no two ways about that. But can we limit the, the, the amount it's changed and can we prevent it becoming a climate disaster? Yeah, I think we can. History teaches us that where there has been uncertainty or global problems, where we have collaborated and worked together, we can solve those. So that gives me hope that if we come together in the way that we're talking about with John Tulane and in other professions and in other industries and collaborate to create the solutions, we will find a way. Thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you to all my guests for taking the time to come and talk to me. I hope that this has sparked some ideas about the wider role of lawyers in climate change risk. And if you enjoyed today's show, then please do like and subscribe to keep up to date with our future content. The Hearing. The Cross-Examination. 
a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.